Amen. Good to see you today. Appreciate those of you who have been praying for my wife, Anne. She had back surgery and it went well. She's back at home resting uncomfortably, and, uh, but it's going good, so we appreciate you praying. Also, thanks for praying for Justin and the team that he took to Managua, Nicaragua. He's, he said they're having an amazing time, and, and he, he sent pictures of, they have this water slide that in the United States, they could never have something so reckless, but you know, <laughs> the kids were just having a great time on it, and then he showed the computer lab that they set up in the school there, and the air conditioner, and Justin teaching in the church, and so it's fun hearing how great it was, and, and he wanted to thank you for all your support and all your prayers as they do this outreach, and it's really cool. So, you know, critical thinking skills are rare nowadays. When we talk about critical thinking, we're talking about the ability to take in a variety of data, weigh it off, consider the sources, project where things might head, and be able to assess what's the best decision that I can make. It's what the Bible calls wisdom, taking information and turning it into effective decisions. Um, In the book of James, he talks about this, and he talks about the meekness of wisdom. He says, if you're envying and self-seeking, That's not wisdom, but uh, it's just confusing. But the wisdom that's from above, he says, is first pure, and it's peaceable and gentle. It's willing to yield. It's negotiable. It's full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he says, if you're really thinking clearly and acting on clear thinking, this is what it ends up looking like. Um, Again, wisdom, it's rare nowadays. Critical thinking, mostly people, when we we use the word critical to mean that we're criticizing someone, but the word just means to weigh out and decide. And so it's really important. Your life becomes the product of your capacity to think critically, therefore to act wisely. Dwight Schrute has a little different definition of it, and he simplifies it a little from the office. Dwight says, says, I think about what I might do, and I ask myself, would an idiot do this? And if they would, then I don't do it. (laughs) But in life, our critical thinking skills are also combined with critical listening skills. Like, how do we listen to what we hear and have it inform us about how we can live the best and most fruitful lives that, lives that we can have. Well, in our passage that we're looking at today, in 2 Samuel 16, we see some of these lessons in very practical ways about how to listen and how to make decisions that bring about the best results. In other words, how to walk in wisdom. And so this was, and the more critical your life situation, the more important it is that you do good critical thinking skills. See, because when you are in a crisis, when you are in a place where this could go really bad or this could go really well, then you need to know how to listen and think and process. And that was certainly where Israel was. David has been at this point run out of the kingdom, at least temporarily. His son's trying to take over. Things are crazy. Everyone's picking sides, trying to figure out what's going to come. And how they handle themselves, both of them, will determine not only their future lives, but the future of the nation of Israel. So it's really important that they get it right. And we see a mixed bag in the way that they handle it. But we come to chapter 16. And the first thing we see, David had left Jerusalem with all his people goes down into the Kidron Valley, across the brook, up, past, up onto the Mount of Olives, and he's heading out of town. He had like some caves where he used to live, so that's where they could go, and he probably had some supplies stowed there, and he knew people there and everything. So he's on the way, and he runs into this guy, Ziba. And it says, he was a little past the top of the mountains. There was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him. Now, refreshing your memories, 
Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. After all of Saul's family got killed off, Mephibosheth, who had been just a little, a little kid at the time when his dad was killed, they tried to rescue him and fell, and he was damaged so that now he was disabled. He couldn't walk anymore. So David had wanted to take care of him, and so he kind of hired Ziba to take care of him, and he told him, you're welcome at the castle anytime. You're like a member of my family, but now you own all of your grandpa Saul's land and possessions and everything. It's all yours. So David rescued him, made him a rich man. Ziba was the guy that was supposed to work for him. He was his caregiver. And, you know, you hear these stories about caregivers who rip off the people they're taking care of. That's Ziba, it seems like. But he meets David with a couple of saddled donkeys and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. So there's all this stuff and these donkeys. And the king said to Ziba, hey, uh, what's all this for? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Now, their traditions meant that if you were going to give something to a powerful person, you didn't want to act like you were doing it for them. So you would give it to the ruler, but then you would say, this is for your people, this is for your servants, this is for the kids, and so on. So that's kind of what he's doing. He's buttering them up, really. And then the king said, and where is your master's son? He's like, you work for Mephibosheth, where is he? Uh, well, Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So he's like, Ziba's like, oh yeah, Mephibosheth? Well, he stayed in Jerusalem because he thinks he's going to take over now. Well, that's kind of, you know, disturbing news for David who had treated him like he was his own son and now he's turned on him. Now, most commentators at this point would say that Ziba was lying. And later David meets up with Mephibosheth and he says, Oh, Ziba was lying about that. I wasn't trying to do that. But it, the Bible isn't super clear as to exactly whether or not this was actually true or not. Because later on when Mephibosheth goes, no, no, I didn't do that. David doesn't then, well, at this point, let me read on first. The king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. David goes, fine. Ziba, you can have all Mephibosheth's stuff, which means all of the inheritance from Saul. So later on, when David runs into Mephibosheth, and he's like, I heard you were trying to become king. He's like, no way, I wasn't at all, man. That was, that was a lie. David doesn't say, then I am taking everything from Ziba and I'm giving it to you. What David said at that point was, you know what, Mephibosheth and Ziba, you guys can divide up Saul's stuff. So I don't think he ever knew for sure. Was this true or wasn't it? Um, but here's, here's the point. When somebody comes and kisses up to you, when someone is giving you something for free, you need to be a little skeptical about it because there can be an ulterior motive. Not always. Not every gift is an attempt at purchasing you, but often people will try to give you stuff in order to influence you. They will kiss up to you to then turn you against somebody else. And I see this all the time. There's this one, it's a Christian ministry actually, that every once in a while they send me a can of coffee. I'm like, I don't drink coffee I actually take the can. I go, well, sometime if I'm really craving a cup of coffee, maybe I'll drink this. So I stick it in the little refrigerator in my office. I think I have like three of them in there now. Because they send them, and then a month later or so, then they send me a personal you know, letter. Hey, hope you enjoyed the coffee. Now, is there a way we could have a meeting? They're just trying to hustle me. And that's, salespeople typically do that. They're always giving stuff away. I'm always skeptical when someone wants to give me something 
but they're selling something else. If you're selling something that's worth it, then convince me and I'll buy it. But don't con me by going, oh, here, here's your... There, there's an agenda that was going on clearly with Ziba, and David really didn't see through it. As a result, he would end up having to kind of go back and go, I can't figure this out. But as we learn to listen, we need to listen to the message behind the message. Okay, it's nice. And you don't want to get all jaded where you just don't, you know, somebody gives you something and you're like, get that out of my sight. I don't, but you just go, okay, thanks. Appreciate the donkeys, appreciate the food, but I wonder what you really want. The other side of this that's really important that he didn't do, how about when you hear a story that Mephibosheth is trying to become king? Zeba's telling you that? How about you go, that's interesting. Maybe I'll talk to Mephibosheth about it at some point and figure out what the real story was. Now, we waited long enough that by the time he ended up talking to Mephibosheth about it, it was kind of over, and so he just had to kind of, okay, whatever. You guys work it out amongst yourselves. You can always have better, make better decisions if you wait until you hear more input. More input is not going to make you you know, less able to make a good decision. Hearing another side of the story is really important. And David, unfortunately, neglected to not only see through this pitch, but to also go, well, I will have to talk to Mephibosheth about that. It would be that simple. I, you know, it's easy for me if I hear about something, I just want to make it right. I'm busy. I don't, don't, don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I need to know, and now I'm going to take care of it. I had a guy... Um, who used to work for me at Calvary, Jeff Roberts, who was one of the calmest, most patient people I ever knew. And I would come in and I'd go, I heard such and such happen and get rid of that person. And he'd go, okay, Dave, calm down. He goes, let me get all the information and then you can fire him if you want. But let me first find out what happened. That happened a couple times and then it rubbed off on me and I realized I don't need to make a quick decision on hardly anything. It never hurts to say, okay, I'm going to consider that, but let me also see what other information I can add in there. What else can I hear that might more greatly inform me as to what the best decision that I can make is on a particular thing? It's why salesmen tell you this deal is good for today only. <laughs> because if you have a chance to think about it, you'll realize, well, it's really not exactly what you thought it was. Well, he kind of buys it right off the bat. So now, as you read down next, um, David's heading, again, out of town. And you see a guy named Shemai. Uh, it says he came to Bahurim, and there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shemai. This guy's a nobody. We don't know who he was ever before. He never did anything to really establish himself. But for some reason, he was a distant, he was from the tribe of, of Benjamin, probably a fan of Saul's. And now's his chance to really let go on David. It's completely stupid. David has an army of soldiers with him. This guy's throwing rocks at him and yelling insults. And, you know, it, it, it says that he just was cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. So the stones weren't going to do any damage, but he's like just acting nuts. And Shemai said thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. He's, he's, he's choosing David off in a fight. He's like, come on. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul and and into the hand of Absalom, and now you're caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Now in verse 9, Abishai, who was um, the brother of Joab, he was one of the generals, he was like David's personal bodyguard in a way. Abishai's like, let me cut his head off. And then we don't have to listen to this anymore. Abishai was always doing that. He had offered to kill Saul for him. He goes, let me just hit him. I'll hit him once. He won't even know what hit him. He's doing it again. And David's like, hey, you guys, um, look, why should, you, why should this dead dog 
curse my lord the king is what Abishai is saying. Let me go over and take off his head. The king said, you guys, you sons of Zeruah, let him curse. Who knows, maybe God is telling him to say this stuff to me. I don't know. Why am I going to react to him? Why do I want to let him turn me into something that I don't want to be? And so um, David said, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life there in verse 11. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him or like whatever. God's given him the freedom to do it. I have more important things to worry about. My son is trying to take the kingdom from me. I'm not going to worry about this guy yelling and ranting and raving and everything that he is saying. And he said, who knows? Maybe the Lord will look on my affliction and he'll stick up for me. And the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. He goes, maybe this will backfire on him. I'd rather let God judge him than for me to judge him. So the guy's over on a different hillside now and he's cursing and throwing stones and kicking up dust. And verse 14, the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. So what was the way to deal with this guy Shemai? The easiest thing would have been to kill him. The easiest thing also would have been to argue with him, start a fight. I mean, you can beat this guy in an argument. But what we see from David here that's really wise don't ever get in an argument with a crazy person. Don't, in fact, don't get in an argument with somebody who's angry. See, the way arguments work, when you start losing an argument, you get angry. You look at two people arguing, the one that's mad is the one who's, they may be right, but they've run out of arguments. And so they try to kick it in with extra passion. You cannot win in a fight with this. There would have been no discussion with Shemai that he would have gone, oh, never mind. Now, his story is interesting because later on, he ends up, when David's back on the throne, he comes and bows down and apologizes. And David's like, eh, I don't take your opinion seriously either way. It's okay. But then it's kind of, I don't know, I, I don't want to say comical, but when David's dying later on, he tells Solomon, there's a list of people that I want you to kill after I die. <laughs> and Shemai's on the list. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there are some traditions that, you know, really were awesome. But, <laughs> I mean, don't you think at the end of your life, if you could just go put a couple hits out, this would be good. <laughs> but we're more civilized today. The point is, he didn't look at Shemai and think, what you think matters Shimei had no credibility. There was no reason in the world why he should have to even get in an argument with someone that had no idea what he was talking about. And this is so important for us. When we are trying to find wisdom, you won't get it from angry people, you won't get it from crazy people. It just doesn't happen. In fact, what you want to do is, and we see later on in the chapter, there are people who are smart and qualified and are able to give you information. Those are the people you want to deal with. I, and you know, nowadays, because of the internet, everyone thinks they're an expert because they can Google. And it's like, if you want to tell me, and I had this happen with my wife having back surgery, it's like, everybody has so much advice. And I don't always say this, but I feel like it. Excuse me, thanks for the advice. Now, where did you go to medical school? Now, that's not to say that somebody who hasn't been to medical school doesn't know something. It's just if you want to play the percentages, people who care enough and know enough about the human body to actually go study it, and I'm not talking about in Guadalajara, I'm talking about like a, um, that's better than nothing, that's better than the school of Google, but... Um, it's like, I want to know that you're qualified before I listen to what you're telling me because the percentages are better. If I want to hear somebody's political opinion, I prefer somebody that cares enough about it to have got an education. If I want to hear a theological perspective, I prefer people who are enough into theology that they actually went and studied it. I don't need ignorant people. I don't need Shemai yelling out stuff and I feel like I have to debate them. And David understood that and it was really smart. Now, when it came to wise people who were capable and qualified, 
Yeah, he, he definitely had those people on his staff. He definitely had people who listened to him. But an awful lot of our wisdom is deciding who not to listen to. Don't interact with somebody who's angry. It doesn't go well ever. And listen, if you want advice, don't take it from somebody that's never done anything, accomplished anything, knows anything in their life. Don't take it from a guy just because he saw some link that said this and therefore now I know. There is more artificial intelligence and people are artificial intelligence. To me, artificial intelligence, first and foremost, is people who think that they're intelligent without actually having to learn anything. They're just copying other people's stuff and, and reposting it, and they think that they're geniuses. That's fine. You have every right. And you know what? There are some people who aren't doctors who end up being right about certain things. But play the percentages. Go with people who actually know what they're talking about, and that's partly why David, and again, he's like, hey, maybe God is even speaking through this guy. It doesn't matter. But I'm not going to react. And this is a good lesson for us, I think. And, and David got this right. It was, it was way better that he did not get sucked into a, a fight with this guy. Yeah, he could have won. He could have killed the guy. But then what does that prove? What does that make him ultimately? What does it make you, what does it make me if we win arguments with people who have no idea what they're talking about? It's just not worth it. It's not wise. Nothing good comes out of it. So now we read on in the story and we go over to Absalom's camp and it says, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel in verse 15, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. Now Ahithophel's a lot different than Shemai. Ahithophel's a wise man. He has been employed as a counselor to David for years and has given him good advice. At the end of the chapter, it says that it was like, man, he gave God's advice over and over again. He had a history of that. When people listened to him, they felt like, I'm hearing from God because he had a long track record of being successful. And so Ahithophel was now working for Absalom. And if you remember, he had personal reasons as to why. But anyway, Hushai came along in verse 16. Hushai was the other guy who had been a really close counselor to David. And now he was probably in a more prominent role because you know, uh, of the fact that Ahithophel had kind of got bugged at David and left. So now Hushai really stepped up and was giving him good advice. And if you remember, when we were in the previous chapter, Hushai came and wanted to stick with David, and instead, David sent him off and said, why don't you go back to Jerusalem, and maybe you can help over there. You can do some good. So Hushai, David's friend, came to Absalom, and Hushai said to Absalom, verse 16, long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. What a blessing to be able to now have two smart guys who want to help you. So in one sense, Absalom was really wise, to listen to Hushai, but he's not listening critically or carefully enough. Because if you look at what Hushai actually said, he comes up first and says, long live the king, long live the king. So it's like, well, who are you referring to? Absalom really wasn't the king. David was really the king. But Absalom kind of it, it blew by him a little bit. He was a little suspicious, though, and and was saying, wait, is your loyalty to your friend? And Hushai said, no, but whom the Lord and this people, all the men of Israel choose, his I will be and with him I will remain. Well, you can look at that two ways. He's saying, no, I'm not following my friend. I'm following who the Lord has chosen. So from Absalom's perspective, he, he took it as, oh, good. You're saying that God has chosen me. But in reality, Hushai is being pretty clever because he's still saying, I serve God. 
that still makes him really valuable and he could still give good advice, but part of it goes over Absalom's head and, and he says, besides that, who should I serve? His son, he's already now letting him know that my master's son is who you are and I want to help you. And so Absalom said to him, oh, well, so I will be in your presence. So we'll stop there in verse 19. It's always wise to have more than one perspective. It's never a good idea to get all your wisdom from one source. Even if you have someone who's really smart, it can't hurt to get another perspective. But you need to be able to read between the lines. You need to be able to look for subtleties. Wisdom is subtle. And so here, it was a good idea for him to accept Hushai. And really, Hushai gave him faithful advice when he, when he asked for it. But at the same time, it's like, I think Absalom thought, okay, good. He's going to flip and he's going to be on my side. Somebody who's giving you advice shouldn't just be someone who's on your side. It should be somebody who's on the side of truth and on the side of God. You, you don't want people who are just kissing up to you, telling you what you want to hear. But also, as in this case, it's a good idea to get, you know, to triangulate, to get perspectives from different people coming from different angles before you ultimately discover the truth. And we see what happens next when you just take one person's perspective, even a wise you know, um, person, because Absalom said to Ahithophel in verse 20, give advice as to what we should do. He's like, tell me what to do next. It's a reasonable question, but Ahithophel gave this advice, this wonderful advice. He said to Absalom, here's an idea. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. Oh, great idea. Yeah, go do something that the law says you get the death penalty if you ever do this. Smart, that'll make you really popular. The people that used to think, wow, he has great hair, are now seeing you in public shaming the throne, shaming somebody that they loved at one point, that is your dad, and you're gonna do this? Yeah, great idea. Now, how does a wise guy give such stupid advice? Wise people will give stupid advice when they have their own agenda, when there's something that is distorting their judgment. And in fact, that's what's happening here. But he pitched a tent and up on top of the house on David's lanai, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, verse 23. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Ahithophel had so much credibility that it didn't even occur to Absalom that I should listen critically. His life is at a crossroads. He is about to make the biggest mistake of his life. See, after this, there's no turning back. At any point, he could have thought... Maybe my dad and I can talk about this and work this out. Maybe Israel can be saved and we can actually be stronger. Maybe people will respect me more. Not after pulling a stunt like this, this was idiotic advice. Where did it come from? Well, Ahithophel, a very wise man, was blinded and biased by his own bitterness against David because Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba, who David had taken from her husband, killed her husband, and taken her as his wife. Somebody does that to your granddaughter, you don't get over that very easily. It clouds your judgment. He had probably left David's employ because this is why he was off at his home when David ended up leaving, and Absalom had to go and get him and bring him in. Smart guy, but with a personal weakness and a bias. And at the same time, let's face it, you know, this Absalom, I think he was probably a pretty good guy, but he had been blinded by what he had gone through as a family. And who would blame him for not being upset? You know, his, 
His dad had done nothing when his sister was molested by his brother. And David just sat there and did nothing. And then when he finally took it into his own hands and killed this child molester, then he ends up having to leave. And David doesn't talk to him for like another five years. So he's kind of ticked at his dad. He's like, I don't, he's not thinking straight. Every one of us has to be so cautious that our own sense of, you know, being upset about something doesn't cloud our judgment. And especially, we don't want to get advice from people who have their own bitterness because bitterness will only cloud good judgment. And in the end, look at the irony. This is what meant that Absalom would never be king of Israel. Now the law says death penalty for this guy. How in the world do you get away with that? But the irony that what he hated his dad for, he had now become. And what Ahithophel hated David for, now he facilitated in the same spot where David had taken his granddaughter Bathsheba. Now he's encouraging somebody to do something even worse. They both became what they hated. They both had developed into something that was, this can't work well for either one of them. And as you continue to read the story, you see the results of what happens when you just, instead of listening to wisdom, and now, what would Hushai have said if, if, if uh, Hithophel had put this idea out and Absalom goes, that is one possibility, but I'd like to hear what Hushai says about it. We don't know what Hushai would have said because Absalom just didn't even bother asking him. He has a wise person there and he doesn't even triangulate. Now, it might be that Hushai would have said, great idea, go for it and see what happens because he just wanted David back in the throne. We don't know. But what we know is he heard, Absalom heard what he really wanted to hear, but he wasn't thinking and projecting about what the ultimate outcome of this would be. As a result, a failure of critical listening and critical thinking, a failure of wisdom, a result of something that was foolish, that, was, that ended up destroying both men in a way that was worse than they ever could have imagined. And so for all of us, every day we make decisions Decisions that have consequences. Every day we find ourselves in a crisis. Wow, I could go this way or I could go this way. And how do we do it? First of all, do we listen to people who are buttering us up? Do we listen to people who are giving us something free so they can sell us something? That's a good way to get bad advice. Do we find ourselves tangled up and fighting against angry, raging, kooky people? Do we, as Pastor Chuck told me one time, I remember he goes, don't ever get in a pissing contest with a skunk. And it's like, so is, that's what a, is there a shimmy in your life? Sorry, don't blame me, blame Chuck and he's dead. But I told him that I was very offended by that. <laughs> It'll be in my movie. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, you know, is that the way we live or do we say, you know what, I have a higher run road to run. I have a higher agenda than to get distracted by stupid things, by angry things, by foolish things. I want to listen to people who really know what they're talking about, and I don't want to just be at the mercy of somebody's agenda. I have an agenda. Most everyone else does too. That's why we need to listen to multiple voices. In a multitude of counselors, the scripture says, a matter will be confirmed. And we see what could have happened if more wisdom had been exercised here and the future of the nation resulted in devastation in a lot of ways because of the fact that although there were certain wise things that they did, there are certain foolish things that they did as well. And I think that the more we learn this lesson, the better we can live our lives understanding that our decisions matter. 
So let me gather data, let me process it, let me project how this is likely to happen, let me talk about the, the credibility of the people that I'm listening to, and then commit it to the Lord and see what kind of wisdom he's actually going to give me. In a time of crisis, we need great decisions. Bad decisions in a time of crisis sink us over and over again as this chapter reveals to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories. We know they're there for a reason because some of us spend our time yelling back at Shemai. Some of us have access to good advice, but instead we're just following our heart. Some of us listen to people with an agenda because we have an agenda. Please teach us, Lord, to walk in wisdom, to make better decisions in our own times of crisis. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the first Sunday of the month, and so we always celebrate communion. Communion represents the greatest crisis in all of human history. In fact, the word crisis comes from the Latin word for cross, and a crisis literally means it's a cross. You come to this point, which direction you go determines where you end up. And so the cross, and when someone says that this is critical, or they also, the Latin word, the crux of the matter, what they're saying is, what I'm talking about here is as crucial to what you need to understand as the cross is to Christianity. Everything changed there. And so when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the crux of the matter. We are celebrating the ultimate crisis. Every one of us has a crisis in our life. Do I follow Jesus? Do I receive from him what he offers or don't I? There are a lot of opinions. You know, the truth is, I mean, you can make an argument. There are even some smart people who would tell you that now there's no eternity, there's no God. When you die, you go nowhere. There are other people who would tell you what I believe, that Jesus is God, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and he offers salvation. So here's the crisis. So you look at it and go, huh, okay, first of all, am I listening to credibility? There are smart, smart people, smarter than me, who, believe, who have believed historically that Jesus rose from the dead and he's our savior. There are smart people who don't believe it. There are reasons why in some ways I might feel less guilty if I thought there was no God. I might feel more guilty if there is. There are dilemmas that life provides. But here, and I like to go back to Blaise Pascal um, the French philosopher who, he described it this way. He said, it's like you're gambling. And he said, you look at the, uh, you know, you decide, okay, I'm going to decide to trust Jesus. And I'm taking a chance that that turns out to be true. That when I die, in fact, I go to heaven. And so he goes, but I know there's a chance that when I die, I just go to nothing. But he said, if I believe in Jesus and I die and there's nothing, I just had a way better life believing in Jesus than I would have believing in nihilism, believing that nothing matters and it all goes you know, to nowhere. But what I'm really betting also is that what if, even if I think, what if there's a 1% chance that the story of Jesus as our savior is true and you decide to play the percentages and you decide to reject him, you're taking a chance. And it's a foolish wager, Pascal would say, because like you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by trusting him. Yeah, we don't, you can't say, oh, 100%, absolutely. No, of course not. But you look at the situation, you look at the perspectives, you listen to all of the um, ideas, and then you go, what has the greatest opportunity for this to turn out to be a wise decision. And the wisest decision that I think anyone can ever make is to say, I will trust in Jesus. Now, 
Jesus understood this, and we celebrate communion today. Jesus told us to. And if you didn't receive one of these cups, you could put your hand up and usher will give you one. But it's, Jesus said, I want you to remember my body that's broken. I want you to remember my blood that's shed. I want you to celebrate this regularly until I come back and we will celebrate it together in the kingdom. You know, that's a pretty bold statement, but it's his priority. And so we do what he says because the powerful truth behind communion is that the crux of the matter is the crux, is the cross. Everything changes there. And there is no reasonable reason to reject something that's free when it can have eternal consequences, but when it for sure will have consequences in the way that your life is right now. And so we partake in communion because we want to remember that. It all comes down to God loving us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And then he conquered death and said, come on. If you believe in me, even if you die, you're still going to live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so we celebrate communion for that reason. Now, if you're here and you're like, I don't know, then I hope you have a really good reason for taking a chance with your own eternity when here it is, it's free. Jesus said, I gave my body, I gave my blood, and it's for you. So today, if you've never received that gift, you can receive it as we partake in communion. Otherwise, it's just like grape juice and a wafer. But boy, there's something that happens in us when we realize this is a physical token that reminds us that his gift is real and it's true and it has rescued lives for almost 2,000 years. So as Nate leads us in a song, just prepare your heart to participate in communion and then we'll all partake together. You've been so, so good.
true if it wasn't for you we would have no hope life would be meaningless and we could be selfish and it would be for nothing thank you for giving yourself for us so that we can truly discover what love looks like what forgiveness feels like lead us Lord we are identifying with you in communion because as we come to various crossroads in our lives We want to make the right choices, and we need your help in doing that. But thank you that you considered us valuable enough that you laid your life down for us. And we celebrate you together with everyone who names the name of Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all partake together. Let's all stand. A couple of announcements. This Tuesday, Pastor Nate is leading a soup kitchen outreach. So you can catch him between services and get more information or email him, nate, at ccpacifichills.org if you'd like to participate. It could be life-changing for you to just take a little time out um, on Tuesday and and go serve some people who definitely need the encouragement and are going to hear about Jesus in the process. So that's coming up on Tuesday. This Saturday, there are a couple of events. We have our men's breakfast at 8 a.m. The men's breakfasts are always great. They're free. You can invite your friends. Chance for men to get together, have a great breakfast, and just a time of hanging out with guys where you can say things that would be offensive anyplace else, where, you know... And then have a little study and some worship. And it's a great way to start your Saturday. And so, man, if you've never been to one of those this Saturday, 8 a.m., I think you'd really enjoy it. And then the same day at noon, our season classics event is at at 12 o'clock and here at the church. And it's going to be a free lunch. And so you can come and have a lunch. And then I'm going to be there to answer any questions that you might have. Every once in a while, you know, I think actually the, the seniors appreciate question and answers more than younger people do because younger people think they know everything. As you get older, you realize how much you don't know. I do a question and answer thing for an hour every week on his channel. I do pastor's perspective periodically, but um, I'll answer any questions and I'll, I'm more than willing to say I don't know. Or if you say, well, make something up, I'll make something up for you. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, that's Saturday at noon. So if it sounds interesting to you, but you're not sure you're actually old enough to qualify, just hit your pants up a little more and they'll let you in. Um, And then we have Vacation Bible School coming up. It's one of our greatest events where kids get together during the week and we have games and Bible stories and music and it's just so much fun. And for people who like love working with kids, but you can't commit to doing it all the time, like in children's ministry. This is a chance for you to do it, even for one day. And Kim Lynn is going to be um, heading that up for us this year. She's one of the most amazing teachers that I've ever known. And, and Jerry's helping her coordinate the whole thing. And, and it looks awesome. It's going to be great. So if you're interested in finding out more about it, there are sign-up sheets on the counter in back by the office. And you can sign up, and I promise they'll find something for you to do to help contribute to making this a special time. So wanting to know about that. If you need prayer, maybe today is like, whoa, I've been making bad decisions. And you just want to start over. Come on down to the front and let people pray for you. Maybe you're not even sure what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you're just, you've been going through a lot, you're getting knocked around, and you really need the sense of a fresh start. Come on down, and uh, people down here who would love to pray with you. But may God give you a week where 
you understand the critical nature of the decisions that you make, and you're utilizing God's wisdom as you make those decisions. The Lord bless thee, Lord bless thee. and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. God bless.